We'll hear argument next to number 00151, United States versus Oakland Cannabis Buyers. General Underwood. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Controlled Substances Act prohibits the distribution of marijuana outside federally authorized research programs because Congress, the Attorney General, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services have each determined that there is no currently accepted medical use for the drug and it has a high potential for abuse. The statute also recognizes that new information might come to light that would justify less restrictive controls, so it establishes an administrative procedure for changing the classification and the restrictions for marijuana and other controlled substances. That statutory scheme leaves no room for the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative to distribute marijuana without the approval of the Attorney General under a claim of medical necessity. And it leaves no room for a court to consider such a claim as a basis for refusing to enjoin the marijuana operations of the cooperative. The Ninth Circuit's ruling, in effect, authorizes the operation of marijuana pharmacies outside the safeguards and restrictions of the Act and undermines the ability of the Act to protect the public from hazardous drugs. The common law defense of necessity can sometimes authorize a person to violate the law in order to avoid a more serious harm, but it doesn't apply here for three reasons. First, because the legislature has already balanced the harms and come to a different conclusion. Congress anticipated there would be claims of medical uses for controlled substances and provided an administrative procedure for evaluating them allowing trial judges and juries to redetermine that balance in individual cases would undermine the procedure established by Congress. Second, because the the defense has no application because the co-op's members and the co-op itself have alternatives to violating the criminal law. They have substantive alternatives, other lawful medications, including a synthetic form of the active ingredient of marijuana, May I ask one question on that subject, Ms. Underwood? You have a footnote in your brief, footnote 11, that describes some of the situations there that gives the impression that this whole case is a sham, that it's really just a front for, for using marijuana. And I'm wondering if, if and your argument you're just making now suggests there are always alternatives, do you think we should take the case on the assumption that there really are some people for whom this is a medical necessity, or should we assume that there are no such people? Um, the, uh, 
on the assumption that there are no such people because the Food and Drug Administration, charged with evaluating the the medical, the, the scientific information, and the, the DEA, that is the, the agencies that, that report to the Attorney General and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, having evaluated the claims of medical use, have found that there is no accepted medical use, that some of the claims of medical use are simply wrong. General Underwood, may I just stop you there? Because t- take one of the uh, examples that was in the, the brief. The one about the man who was uh, constantly vomiting, and the only thing that calmed him down, he had a lymphoma or something like that. Uh, That is not an uncommon experience. And what surprised me about this case was that that kind of thing has been going on, individual doctor prescribing marijuana, just to prevent that kind of extreme suffering. And... It, that, that seemed to have gone without enforcement until California passes this proposition and you get clinics selling it, not individual doctor. Am I wrong in thinking that there has been quite a bit, bit of this going on in the medical profession? Well, I, the record doesn't reflect, and I don't know how much of it has been going on. I think there are two things to say in response to that, though. One is that um, the, the agencies charged with evaluating the medical uses here have uh, ongoing studies um, and have so far concluded that there are that, well, that the particular use that you're describing is best served. Uh, there's now a, an extract of, uh, of marijuana that's been on the market, been, been available and been put on a lower schedule than Schedule 1 for, for 15 or 16 years, which is this Marinol, and efforts are being made to find other methods of administering the pure substance and determining whether it has the effect that's described. Ms. Underwood, um, I, these judgments made by the, by the federal agencies, the FDA and the, the, the DEA, uh, I think they take into account the overall public interest. I mean, they — I'm not sure that, they're, that they have come to the conclusion that uh, marijuana would never, ever, ever be, uh, be helpful to someone who's in, uh, in extreme pain. I, I think what they've probably done is made the judgment that the chances of its being that helpful and not being replaceable by something else are so slim that in view of the abuses to which uh, general permission for its use uh, would lead, uh, it's best that it that it be proscribed. Is that an inaccurate determination on my part? Uh, would, could, could, could you really say that there has been a determination by the federal government that marijuana is never medically useful? Well, the determination has been made is that the medical utility of it has not been established, which is a slightly different way of putting it. But there is a separate determination. The FDA makes determinations, as it does with substances that aren't on the controlled substances list. That is, there are new drugs that are proposed all the time which might possibly be useful and aren't uh, authorized for use until after tests satisfy the FDA that the drug is safe and effective for use, and marijuana has not passed that screen. There is an additional screen for controlled substances that is, uh, in addition to considering uh, 
in, in the scheduling decision takes into account not just medical utility, but also the potential for abuse. But the, but the FDA's role in it, the Health and Human Services' role in it, is just to assess or it has a role in simply assessing the medical evidence and has concluded um, that uh, to date there is insufficient reason to think that it is a safe and effective drug, although there are continuing uh, research projects going on to try and pursue uh, the anecdotal information that, there, that it is sometimes helpful or that components of marijuana are sometimes Ms. helpful. Ms. Underwood, it would help me, uh, General Underwood, if you would uh, tell me why the word preemption doesn't appear in the government's brief, because I took the simple-minded approach looking at this. Here's Congress says this is a Schedule One drug, and California says you can have it if you've got a note from a doctor that says you have a migraine headache. Why isn't the federal law that says this is a Schedule One drug preemptive? And I, it must have been with some thought that you didn't use that word. Well, the California law doesn't actually uh, purport to authorize the distribution of marijuana with a doctor's note. It provides uh, a defense to California law. Um, now, it is true that uh, uh, an effort is being made here to invoke uh, the judgment behind that law as a, a, in support of the claim of medical necessity. But, but California didn't purport to create a defense to federal law, as it couldn't have. If it had tried, it would have been presumably uh, uh, preemptive, pre preempted. But um, it's perfectly possible to comply with both California law and federal law. Um, there, there isn't that kind of conflict here. Um, I didn't explain I, that to me because I thought to comply with federal law, you can't sell it. Well, that's right, but California law doesn't require you to sell it. It simply says that you won't be prosecuted. California could remove the could, could, could eliminate. All it says is you'll, you'll be at the mercy of, of the feds. Yes. You won't go after you. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and I, I should say that the. Um, the decision of the federal agencies not to accept the kind of anecdotal evidence that you're that you're suggesting uh, is a decision that the federal the Food and Drug Administration has made again not just in the controlled substance area but it has concluded that the anecdotal reports of individuals are a basis for research, a reason to conduct research, and not a basis for uh, authorizing the use of a drug or or changing. Uh, changing its, uh, its scheduling. General Underwood, there's some indication uh, in the trial court's observation that he had no choice but to enter this injunction. That's something of an over-reading. Uh, but suppose I were the district judge and I said, you know, General Underwood, you, you, you want me to basically supervise what's going to be a major effort to prosecute people, uh, and you're doing this under my contempt power, uh, I don't want the court to get involved in this. You have your own United States and assistant United States attorneys. You have investigations. Bring these as prosecutions, and then we'll hear these cases, and if there's a necessity defense or something, we can rule on them. Uh, but you're basically asking me to issue an injunction, and in order to enforce it, I'm going to have to make prosecutorial decisions. I don't want to be bothered with that, because I think it 
it intrudes upon the separation of powers balance. This makes me more of a prosecutor than um, uh, than a neutral judge. If he said that, would he be abusing his discretion? Yes. There are grounds on which a court can deny injunctive relief. For example, um, if the court found that violations had stopped and are unlikely to recur and an injunction wasn't necessary to effectuate the purposes of the Act, this court noted that in Hecht against Bowles. Um, and there may be other grounds, but the but I would say that uh, the judge who said what you, what you just said would be, uh, in fact, intruding on uh, Article II executive prerogatives by, uh, by insisting that when Congress has provided both civil and criminal enforcement mechanisms, as it often does, um, that the executive is not free to choose the enforcement mechanism, the civil enforcement May mechanism. I ask this that question. Does the executive, uh, the d- uh, district attorney, have prosecutorial discretion not to bring a case if he thinks the particular defendant really is a person that has this, this serious illness and so forth? There's always prosecutorial discretion. Why would a judge have less discretion than a prosecutor? The judge has different discretion from a prosecutor. It is for the prosecutor to decide whether a case merits prosecution or whether a civil injunction is worth bringing. If the judge reacts to precisely the same reasons that motivate a prosecutor not to bring a case, would that be an abuse of discretion? Yes, it would. Um, The court's role in the process is not the executive's role. The court can not deny an injunction on the grounds that the executive should, for instance, have chosen the criminal sanction or should not have brought the case at all. Um, if, if well, well, suppose the judge has legitimate concerns that, given the resources of the court, uh, that it's going to make him basically substitute uh, for the United States attorney in the Northern District of California. He's going to have to decide who to prosecute for, for contempt, and it's going to be criminal contempt and so forth. Uh, basically, it seems to me that he's now uh, being put in the role of, of, of the supervising prosecutor well, just he, in order to enforce his injunction. Well, no, the contempt actions, again, will be brought by by the prosecutor. And I, I, I'd like to point out why civil, it, while well, I don't I, think... I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure that he has, uh, or should have a major say in, 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 in how he's going to enforce his injunction, who he's uh, going to bring, bring to court for the contempt action in the first instance, what kind of examples he's going to make, etc. There's a reason why civil injunctive uh, enforcement is uh, authorized and why it's appropriate. I don't think it's for the court to second-guess the prosecutor, but there is a reason. The civil injunctive remedy in this statute was patterned on a similar provision in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and the purpose of that was to provide a way to resolve legal disputes without the harshness of a criminal prosecution. This is just that kind of dispute, open and ongoing violations of the law designed to test the statute with the California state law in the background. Um, once there, there's no reason to think that once a court resolves the question that the, it, it holds, for instance, that there is no medical necessity defense or holds that in any event whatever medical necessity defense there might be doesn't authorize the operations of, um, of uh, marijuana pharmacies, as in this case, that the, uh, that the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative won't comply with the law. Well, maybe it will, but isn't, isn't the real concern, and I, I want to state a variant on Justice Kennedy's question, 
isn't the real concern behind this that with the, with the passage of the California proposition and the popularity within the California population that that necessarily entails, it will be very, very difficult for the government ever to get a criminal conviction in a jury trial. And the reason, it seems to me, that the, the reason I assumed this was being brought was to avoid hung juries in criminal cases. Uh, if, if, the, if the trial court, uh, in fact, were to conclude that that is the reason, and that's, the, that's why the injunctive remedy was being invoked, would that be a good reason for the court to say it is not certainly a necessary and maybe not an appropriate use of equity uh, to give the government an alternative to six-month or less sentences for criminal contempt uh, in, in order, in effect, uh, to make a, 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 a criminal statute uh, enforceable, which in the normal criminal course is not. Would that be an abuse of discretion? Not if the statute authorizes a civil injunctive remedy. And I, but I would like — It would not be an abuse Excuse of me. I, I, I misspoke. That would not be an — You scared be, me there for a minute. It would be an abuse of discretion. It would not be an appropriate ground for withholding uh, injunctive relief. But I would like to point out that the statute, this statute, perhaps out of a concern like that, or perhaps for some other reason, contains a jury trial requirement uh, — provides a jury trial for a trial of contempt of an injunction that is obtained No, no matter what the length of sentence requested? Yes. Uh, General Underwood, do do you agree with all of the premises of these questions? I mean, is is it true that California juries generally don't convict people of crimes uh, that they don't agree with? Is that that the practice? I I haven't lived in California in quite a while, but California juries only only enforce those those criminal laws they like. Is that I have no information about that, but I would like to. Do we know whether this United States attorney brought this as a civil as a civil matter precisely because of the legal doubt uh, or or rather in order to avoid a jury trial? Do we have any idea which, which of the two it is? I, don't, I was not uh, — I don't have the answer to that question, and, and of but course I know this, And, of course, th- th- this entire argument would disappear if Congress eliminated the criminal penalty, and then presumably the uh, U.S. attorney would, would be free to get as many injunctions as, as he liked uh, with the same consequences. I should think so. I, I would just but like to point one out. aspect of this, General Underwood, the respondent uh, says, and this I think you might know the answer to. Respondent says that overwhelmingly um, this act is enforced via criminal prosecution rather than civil injunction. And do you know that? What is the enforcement practice with respect to the CSA? I know that. Civil injunctions have been used on other, uh, exactly on occasions, under this statute as well as under uh, other statutes, where there is a business enterprise going on that has a dispute with the government about whether what they're doing is outside the statute or not. I don't think it's because — Romulo Barcella was a civil injunction in connection with the EPA, wasn't it? That's correct. But but — and under this statute in particular, though, the Controlled Substances Act, it is not customary to seek injunctions against uh, street dealers of narcotics. But it is customary to seek injunctions against, for instance, manufacturing plants that — 
are claiming that, that their uh, use of particular chemicals is or what they're doing is, is within the Act or without the Act. I mean, when there, when there is a, essentially a dispute with the business enterprise about the legality and propriety of what they're doing. Um, and that is actually not just under the Controlled Substances Act, but under many statutes, the kind of occasion when an injunction is used to resolve the legal dispute. Um, on the assumption that once that legal dispute is involved, is resolved, it will not be necessary to seek, uh, further enforcement but there will be you can make the same argument for bringing a criminal prosecution. So, so presumably you put somebody in jail, they'll stop doing it, too. Yes, but what Congress said, actually, in uh, authorizing injunctive relief is that when there is this kind of dispute, it's, uh, it is desirable to provide a mechanism for resolving it without putting people at risk of going to jail. If, and that's one reason. Referring to the legislative history, I presume. It doesn't yeah. say that in the statute. Though. No, it does not. I'm referring to legislative history. Actually. So some little piece of Congress said that, right? Well, I'm actually referring to legislative history of the food drug and, of, the, of the analog provision in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act simply to suggest not that we know that that's what Congress voted on, but that that is a common, widely understood yes, reason. Yes, but those are cases where there's a legitimate difference of opinion on whether the whether there was a, well, a violation of law. But under your view here, the violation of law is so obvious and clear that there isn't any, even any colorable argument to the contrary. That's our view. Yeah. But there is a claim to the contrary, and I don't think it requires that we credit that claim to decide that an appropriate way to resolve that dispute is in a civil enforcement action. Um, and that um, — so that's the story about when we sometimes use civil enforcement actions. Actually, very often, a uh, um, uh, respondent has suggested that it's hardly ever used because there aren't reported opinions. The most common uh, occasion where civil enforcement actions are used they're also settled. That is, the, the, the injunction, uh, the, the complaint is filed and there's, a, and there's a civil settlement involving money and agreements to change practices and maybe an agreement not to deal in a particular drug, uh, a, a chemical, for some period of time. And there are numerous examples uh, of that. Um, what, what, what is the advantage the government has from an injunction uh, rather than a concerted effort of uh, discrete prosecutions by the United States Attorney's Office? Well, uh, for example, here where we are arguing, where it is our position that there simply is no medical necessity defense at all, and therefore that um, uh, one shouldn't be entertaining evidence and adjudicating the appropriateness of a medical necessity defense in a particular case, the way to get that resolved systemically is in a civil, in a, a civil proceeding that simply presents that legal question. Yeah. Then, then you do want us to rule on, on, on the issue that the Ninth Circuit made. This is a, you, you were ruling uh, just as a general matter that there's no medical necessity. Well, it is, it, is, it is a part of our I, argument. I'm concerned about using the courts uh, to answer questions so remote from, from – specific disputes. It isn't necessary to reach that result, but it is a part of our argument that the reason the injunction, the reason the Ninth Circuit was wrong to suggest that the injunction might not issue or might be limited 
that the Court predicated that holding on, a, uh, on an error of law. I, I mean, one — uh, there are many reasons why a Court might exercise its discretion, but it is not a good reason to exercise its discretion to rely on a mistake of law and the, a mistaken view of the law. And that mistake is that the Controlled Substances Act authorizes or contemplates or is consistent with a medical necessity defense. Well, That's then you're very pleased with what the Ninth Circuit did in one sense, because now you can get the issue resolved up here. But I, I just I would say that's, that's a result of what the Ninth Circuit. I think that's a good use of the federal district court's authority. Out of evil I, I think good, General Underwood. Isn't that wonderful? Pardon me. Uh, you said out of evil cometh good is your position on, on the Ninth Circuit. Yes, I, 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 our initial position was not that we wanted to bring this to the, to the United States Supreme Court, but that the. Uh, that the practice, that the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative and similar cooperatives should be enjoined from engaging in the open and notorious uh, violation of the controlled substance. General Underwood, if, if, it, if you take it as a criminal prosecution, and it's an unsettled question of law whether there's a medical necessity defense, uh, a typical district trial judge is probably going to err on the side of letting it in, since you can't say one, one way or the other, and you may not get it resolved by a criminal prosecution. That's correct. General Ordered, what, 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 what is the penalty for violating uh, an injunction? The, uh, 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 the, the statute calls for enforcement by contempt. Uh, would be criminal contempt? Well, there's a, uh, uh, no, uh, well, there's a, there's a civil contempt in the statute. What, what I'm getting to is would you be entitled to a jury in the trial for contempt? The de- yes, I said earlier the defendant by statute is entitled to a jury. It's still a civil, so it wouldn't be beyond a reasonable doubt. It would be, I think it's clear and convincing in this case. Is that right? It's not a criminal proceeding. It's a trial under the, under the federal rules. That, that, that would make a big difference to a jury who, who doesn't want to convict this person. I mean, at the end of the road, there's a jury. Yes, there is. Which is going to, which is going to let you off if it wants to let you off, whatever the standard of proof is, so that if, if, if the U.S. attorney here were only trying to avoid a jury, he, he ought to be replaced. Um, the jury is a there can be a criminal contempt proceeding if the injunction is violated under the statute, correct? Something was said a minute ago about it being just a civil jury. But um, the, the U.S. attorney would, could bring criminal contempt to someone violated, and I thought your answer was, under the statute, uh, even if it's criminal contempt and the penalty would be within the penalty requested would be within the minor offense range, they'd still get a jury trial, and that was the answer to my, my suggestion. The statute, Section 882, says in case of an alleged violation of an injunction or a restraining order issued under this section, trial shall, upon demand of the accused, be by a jury under the, in accordance with the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Okay. That's, that's what Congress yeah. contemplated. And instructed. I understood you before in answer to the question about why the civil injunction to say that well you wouldn't do that with a street peddler but you want to put you want to put this um, clinic out of business. I want to stop it from engaging in the unlawful distribution of marijuana. It might have some other business, but I don't believe the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative at the moment is engaged in other businesses. Um, and. As, I, as I've said, that's the dispute that we have with the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative about whether what they're doing is lawful or not is one that is, is ideally suited to resolution in a civil, in a civil litigation. 
Um, I think I'll reserve the rest of my time for a bit. Very well, General Underwood. Uh, Mr. Ullman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, when the government initiated these proceedings, it made a tactical choice to forego criminal prosecution in favor of seeking injunctive relief pursuant to Section 882. That choice had serious consequences for the respondents because it deprived them of the full opportunity to a jury trial. Did your, respond, did your respondents ask to be prosecuted criminally? Was that their preference? Uh, we had no choice in the matter, Your uh, Honor. How did it deprive them? I mean, Ms. Underwood's answer was they get a jury trial in any case. It, it's a jury trial in accordance with the federal rules of civil procedure, which means that the court can enter a, a uh, summary judgment. Uh, the court uh, uh, does not apply the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that actually happened in this case. You mean for the a response? criminal no. for a criminal contempt? For a civil contempt. Okay. What, oh, yeah, about, what a about a criminal, criminal. contempt? Well, they have not initiated a criminal contempt uh, prosecution. Uh, that would be a criminal prosecution, and we would have a what's, right, what's the, full right. What's to the sanction it. for a, a finding of a civil contempt violation? Uh, it can't be jailed. No. I believe they could be fined. Uh, no, you're in the civil no. contempt, no. they say you have the key to the jail in your own pocket because it's enforced to, to cause you to do something. You can be jailed, I believe, on civil contempt. If you, if you refuse to. Right. Yes. Until you conform with the, uh, with the order. Uh, and, and that happened here. I mean, th these uh, respondents were found in contempt of court without a jury trial. Uh, and it, did, did they ask for a jury trial? Yes. Uh, but the court ruled that uh, under Section 882, the trial is conducted in accordance with the federal rules of civil procedure. Therefore, um, a summary judgment could be entered, and, well, and the government succeeded in obtaining and, a summary judgment. And what was the penalty that was being requested? Was the penalty a, a fine or, 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 or uh, punitive incarceration? Uh, no fine was imposed. Uh, well, what was requested when you went to trial? Did the government say, uh, we forego any uh, incarceration as punishment, we're going to ask for a fine as punishment? Uh, did the government make any specification of that sort? No. The, the government asked that uh, the uh, sheriff or the marshal seize the premises in which the uh, business was being operated. Um, and, of course, uh, the, the uh, respondents were at risk of incarceration if they remained in contempt. Well, that's just like a yep. civil nuisance action. Yeah. That's just a nuisance action in the federal court. It's all yes. but, but the point is, uh, the defenses that the uh, respondents wished to assert were never determined by a jury. But you're, in effect, saying that even if it's purely civil contempt, if they are found to have violated the injunction, and they do not agree to abide by the injunction in the future, they can at least be jailed coercively. Is, is that the point? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Uh, it would truly be ironic uh, to hold that federal prosecutors have full discretion to decline prosecution, but when they elect to come into a federal court sitting as a court of equity, that court has no discretion 
to decline to issue an injunction. Just as soon as I take it that if uh, I'm the trial judge and I have someone who's violated my injunction, I can't say, now I'm going to put you in jail now until you sign an agreement not to do this anymore. I can't do that. You, it's, it's a coercive action for something that's within the power of, within your power to perform, to, to turn over some goods, uh, to, to uh, un- unlock a locker. To, to. But that's not, that's, so, so, so there can't be, incarcer- could, there can't could, be incarceration here. You could incarcerate me until I obey the court order. I mean, that's done all the time with a, a witness who refuses to, to testify and is held in contempt. But, but these are all past acts. There's, there's, there's nothing to incarcerate for. Or am I wrong? Am I missing something? Did the judge incarcerated these people? He couldn't. He did not uh, in this case because the uh, respondents agreed to uh, refrain from the from the from the conduct. The contempt was purged uh, ultimately. Uh, but if the if the uh, uh, respondents insisted on continuing their uh, uh, their operation in in violation of the injunction, they could have been jailed. Is I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm really not well, sure. Well, I, I disagree is. with I, that, but we'll 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 leave it. We'll leave it go. Right. I I, I thought that that this kind of civil contempt, uh, where you have the key in your pocket, is only for the kind of contempt that's in the presence of the court, where you refuse to testify or disrupt proceedings or something like that. I'm not sure that. Anyway, we, we can look that up. Let, 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 let me come to your, 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 your perception that, that it, it would be unthinkable that it could be up to the U.S. attorney whether to bring a criminal action or not. But, but a federal judge could not decide that uh, he won't issue an injunction uh, using the same sort of discretion. Why is that so unthinkable? I mean, in a criminal case, the federal judge certainly can't say, you know, I don't think this criminal case should have been brought at all. Well, in a, in a criminal case, Your Honor. And I'm going to ignore it. He can't do that, can in, he? In a criminal case, uh, a judge is, is sitting as a court of law. Uh, what we're saying is when a federal court is sitting as a court of equity, uh, it has the traditional discretion to weigh the, the interests, to balance the interests. To say to that the this public- civil action should not have been brought. I disagree with the United States Attorney that this civil action, which is authorized, which he's authorized to bring under the statute, should have been brought, and therefore I will nullify it. You, you think a court has what, what that What we're power? saying is all this statute says is if the court has jurisdiction to issue an injunction, surely they can come in and ask for an injunction. And we're saying the court has discretion to say, under these circumstances, I'm not going to issue well, what, an what, injunction. What's your, author- what's your case authority for that sort of a proposition? Um, because the cases you, you cite in your brief strike me as quite far off the point. Uh, Hecht and Company and Romulo Barcello. In, in those cases, the person was either in compliance by the time it got to court or else the court had said, look, you, I won't issue an injunction, Romulo Barcello, but you have to go get a permit. In no case did the court ever say, well, we think you've got a defense to this act, so we're not going to issue the injunction. Well, we believe that, uh, that Hecht versus Poles and, and Weinberger versus uh, Romero Barcello are quite in point because in both cases, uh, it was within contemplation that future violations would occur, and the court 
uh, still declined to exercise its jurisdiction. Be- because it, it, one, one, it said the violations had been cured as promptly as they'd been called the attention, that Hex had put in a new staff to tr- try to do things. I mean, that's quite different from your case, where you say we're, we're going to just go ahead and do this. Well, in Romero-Barcello, uh, the, the court, uh, in effect, said the, the Navy can continue to drop its bombs while it applies for a for a permit, so... But there wasn't any failure to rule on what the law is. In both of those cases, the judge adjudicated the case and said, you did wrong, but I'm not going to slap you with an injunction because in the Bowles case it was inadvertent and I'm, I have every reason to believe you won't do it again. See, it, I didn't get from any of the cases you cite authority that a judge would have to say, I'm just not going to participate in the adjudication of this case. Well, first of all, by declining to enjoin, the court is not allowing the uh, violations to continue because the government still has the option of initiating a criminal prosecution at any time. Uh, and, you and know, that's, it seems and, to me what happened here is that it originally went to a federal district court judge who, who uh, granted an injunction, and then it was appealed at the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit appeared, at least, uh, to create some kind of a blanket exception to the provisions of the Controlled Substances Act and returned it to the district court, uh, which it required to uh, withdraw or or to enter what, what the Ninth Circuit held is that the district court had discretion uh, to allow this exemption to the injunction for two reasons. First, because uh, the, the respondents who came within this common law necessity defense were not violating the act. Uh, so they should not be enjoined because Well, it was they, a kind of a blanket uh, medical necessity defense that it recognized. And I would have thought that the initial trial judge did not abuse his discretion at all, and that the Ninth Circuit erred at the point that it created this blanket defense. Well, it's not a blanket defense, uh, Your Honor, in the sense that every uh, respondent who wishes to take advantage of it is going to have to show that they are uh, suffering from a serious medical condition, that they face imminent harm of, of death or blindness, uh, that cannabis will alleviate their condition, and that they have no reasonable alternative, that every alternative available has been tried and, and found uh, uh, ineffective for them. So, But the action is brought against the clinic, not against the individual sufferers. So you seem to be putting together... Two things that don't mix. You're saying well, that an individual saying, might have a plea of medical necessity, but the d- judge was faced with a clinic that's selling to all kinds of people. Some of them don't fit that description at all. Well, no. Actually, selling to anyone other than the limited number of patients who come within this exception is enjoined by the preliminary injunction. All the court has done is to create a very narrow exception for a very limited number of patients 
who come within these four criteria. Well, it doesn't sound to me limited at all. Even, even with drugs that can be dispensed, doctors are required, prescriptions are required. Uh, that, that wasn't any part of this injunction as envisaged by the Ninth Circuit at all. Well, our contention uh, is we, that a non, 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 non-medical people deciding the so-called medical necessity. That's a, that's a huge rewriting of the statute. Well, it's implicit uh, in all of these conditions that there is a medical decision being made. That is, no patient uh, qualifies under the California initiative unless they have a physician's recommendation or approval. And meeting the criteria that all alternatives have been tried and failed uh, implicitly assumes some medical supervision in that process. Our contention is that when we come within this medical necessity uh, defense, no prescription is necessary, uh, that we're dealing with highly unusual circumstances that were not contemplated by Congress uh, when it required a prescription for the normal use of any, of any drug. When a, when a physician issues a Well, to say it wasn't contemplated by Congress when Congress made a finding that there's no known medical use for it, uh, it doesn't make much sense, I think. Well, y- Your Honor, Congress never made such a finding. They did not say there is no known medical well, well, use well, for cannabis. Well, what is the definition of Schedule One in the Controlled Substances Act? Uh, the criteria for placement on Schedule One or movement off of Schedule One, when it's done administratively by the DEA, are set forth in Section 812. And those criteria do include no currently accepted medical use. But Congress itself put cannabis on Schedule One, So it wasn't bound by those criteria. Well, but presumably, if it did it itself, it must have thought that it qualified for Schedule One under those criteria. Well, it just didn't want to leave it up to an administrative agency to make the decision. All it had to conclude in terms of a rational basis test was that uh, it wanted to impose the most restrictive <laughs> limitation, uh, uh, and and that is Schedule 1, no use without a prescription. But we're saying even that finding, that there's no use without a prescription, is not a rejection that under limited circumstances uh, where a patient is facing imminent harm and has no reasonable alternative, uh, the, the drug cannot be used without a prescription. It's a, it's a classic illustration Excuse of the me, choice of evil's defense. If that's the case, how, is, how could it be that the patient wouldn't be able to get a prescription? I mean, you're saying it's absolutely necessary for, you know, stop the patient from dying or from vomiting or whatever? That's there, right. There's not a doctor in California who'll say, you know, here, I'll write you a not prescription. Not for cannabis. Not for mm-hmm. cannabis. Because it is on Schedule One. a physician cannot write a prescription. Okay, so it's not just a, re- a, a requirement of, of, of a prescription that Congress is prescribing. Well, by putting it on Schedule One, they're saying you can't, you can't use it by prescription. Now, when a doctor issues a prescription, all he's concluding is that this will help you. He's not required to conclude that you have no other alternative. Uh, he's not required to conclude you have a serious condition and you may die or go blind if you don't have this medicine. All he's got to say is, this will help you. Here's a prescription. Go get it and take it. Uh, but the medical necessity defense requires much more. It requires a, a conclusion that the, the 
patient is facing a serious medical crisis. Uh, is is a, there any other case in which this Court has recognized the medical necessity defense? Well, calling it medical necessity. Uh, well, I asked you a question. I, no. Okay. okay. Uh, but medical necessity is just an example of the classic necessity but, defense defined by the model penal code. In fact, one of the examples. But that's based on common law, is it not? The, yes, the it whole, is. And what you have here is a statute that Congress enacted that uh, quite arguably simply ruled out the sort of defense that you're urging. Well, Congress certainly didn't explicitly rule it out. What the government is arguing is that we can imply this limitation from the structure of the Act uh, and from its purpose. But a well, careful from its placement on Schedule One. Well, its placement on Schedule One uh, involves this issue of currently accepted medical use, which is a term of art that does not address the question of whether uh, under particular circumstances of an individual patient facing a medical crisis, uh, there might be medical utility for the drug. The, the Do I understand you correctly, uh, Mr. Ullman, from what you've argued about medical necessity, the, the California uh, initiative is, is essentially uh, irrelevant because you'd be making the same argument in any state. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. This defense should be available to any patient in any state, regardless of whether that state has approved uh, under broader conditions the general use of, uh, of cannabis as medication. I guess, would it be limited to cannabis, or, or, or would you have a similar exception to any of the, uh, any of the prohibitions? Well, if the conditions are met, mm -hmm. uh, that you face this imminent crisis and no other alternative is available, yes, it should be available for other medications. And it would well. be up to the individual who, who wants it to take his chances and say, I think there's a medical necessity, and then well, that's a risky, that later in, that's a risky that venture later. because that individual is going to have to prove in a court of law that, in fact, uh, he, had, he was facing this crisis and he had no alternative. Yeah, well, you know, if he really thinks he's going to die, that's, that's an easy gamble, right? Uh, uh, the, the, a jury versus a, the, the, the grim reaper. Uh, I'll, I'll take the jury any day. Well, uh, at least in the, in the uh, confines of the modification of this injunction, uh, we're talking about more than that. We're talking about a requirement that you prove that you have tried all of the all, uh, other alternatives that might be available, and, uh, and they didn't help. How serious does your medical condition have to be? I mean, I gather cannabis is not a life-saving drug. It, 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 it alleviates great pain and discomfort. Well, we believe it is a life-saving drug. It's a life-saving drug for AIDS patients who are not going to benefit from the new medications available to keep them alive if they can't keep their weight up, if they can't maintain their, their, their general well, health. So how, how, serious, how serious does a case have to be before this medical necessity defense kicks in, in your view? Well, in, in the injunction, we're talking in terms of imminent harm. We believe that well, what, of what sort of harm? Death, starvation, blindness. Stomachache? No. We're That's talking harm, about, about patients who are going to lose their sight, uh, who are going to forego 
uh, chemotherapy or radiation because they can't live uh, with the severe well, you nausea. Have to add some, uh, you have to add some ad- adjective to just imminent harm. You want a, imminent life-threatening harm? Imminent uh, what? Well, we, you want we to exclude a stomach ache and, and an earache, maybe. No, I think we're talking about much more serious harm, but we're talking about balancing the, the choice of evils here. Suppose Congress uh, were to say, we don't want a medical, we didn't, we thought controlled substance uh, schedule one is, it's prohibited. Now we're going to make clear that there's no medical necessity defense. Then, then what happens to your case? Clearly, Congress did not say that. But if it did, we would contend that uh, we then have a serious constitutional problem uh, in terms of a violation of the substantive due process right to preserve your life. I, I then we it, confront may, the Glucksburg. May case. I just ask you a question on that? Uh, I take it that there was no constitutional litigation below, that you're raising the constitutional issue here on, on the constitutional avoidance rationale. Yes. The, the constitutional issue was raised, but in a different context. Was, was it, I mean, did you put in evidence on it, or, or did you argue it, or was it just one of those things that you never got to? Uh, it was argued in the context of the broader motion to dismiss. But with respect to the medical necessity uh, issue that's before this Court, uh, our position is that if this statute is construed to preclude a medical necessity defense under these circumstances where the patient uh, faces loss of life or loss of sight, there would be a violation of a substantive due process. Did, did you also raise the Commerce Clause uh, unconstitutionality? We did. We did, did you press both of those in the Court of Appeals when you were appealing from the original injunction? They were fully briefed in the Court of Appeals in the context of the dismissal. And the Court of Appeals didn't pass on them, I gather. Uh, no, they didn't, although they, they didn't address it uh, specifically in the context of the medical necessity defense. But, but you're asking us to hold that this defense exists in broad general terms. It's a, it's a sweeping proposition with no specific plaintiff in front of us, uh, with no specific symptoms or, or testimony from a doctor as, as, as to this person, which, which — which, well, it, it may course, be which, better. Which led me to question the, the, the whole use of the injunctive power to begin with. But yeah. uh, so long as we have the injunction and the statutory authority, it seems to me that you have to wait for a specific case to raise this defense. Well, that's our position, uh, Justice Kennedy, that the, the availability of the medical necessity defense should await a criminal prosecution in which the defense is asserted and evidence is presented. And well, but in the meantime, it seems to me the nuisance can be enjoined, and if the, and if the uh, defendant wants to take his chances on a criminal contempt, he can do so. Well, our, our contention is that uh, you can decide this court just based on the traditional discretion that a court of equity has to allow this exception uh, but uh, I think it was pointed out earlier that the district court here, whose, whose discretion it is, originally granted the injunction just what the, what the uh, government asked for. And it was the Court of Appeals who does not have discretion, which directed the district court to exercise it in a different way. Well, the Court of Appeals was saying that the district court misconceived the law when the court was asked to modify the injunction. And what should we do if we decide that the Court of Appeals misconceived the law? I mean, what should we do with this case? Well, if you feel that the Court of Appeals misconceived the law, uh, then, then of course, you're going to have to reverse the Court of Appeals. 
but our, our position is uh, the Court of Appeals was, was essentially correct on both grounds, that uh, the Court does have discretion to decline to enjoin, and uh, these, uh, this conduct doesn't violate the statute because it comes within this medical necessity defense. Mr. Yeoman, let me talk about the medical. I, I, I had understood medical necessity defense, if it existed to be a defense on the part of the person who is in medical necessity and who uses marijuana or any other prohibited drug when he shouldn't. Now, you would extend this also to the person who provides it to any person who is in such needs. That's correct. And you would extend it beyond that to someone who opens up a business in order to provide uh, uh, prohibited drugs to people who need them. I, that, that's a, that's a, a vast expansion beyond any necessity defense that I've ever heard of before. Well, it's perfectly I've heard of a necessity defense on the part of the defendant who, you know, used it or whatnot. But you're saying by reason of the necessity defense, you can open up a business to provide for these necessities. It's perfectly consistent with the choice of evils concept of the the necessity defense because the person who provides the substance uh, to the the patient um, is also faced with a choice of evils. Uh, In the case of United States versus Newcomb, which we cite in our brief on, on page 23, makes it very clear that this common law necessity defense extends to the third party provider as well. Well, what choice of evils is the provider faced with? Uh, of, of letting someone die or, what, or violating the law. Well, of not being able to supply the person. I mean, it, it is, certainly isn't the provider's responsibility to look after the individual. Well, You say letting someone die. We're, we're saying the, the necessity defense permits or justifies this choice even by the provider as well as the, as the patient. Uh, actually, the, the choice of uh, evils defense as, de- as described in the model penal code uh, offers this as an example. A druggist may dispense a drug without the requisite prescription to alleviate grave distress in an emergency. Uh, and sure, but this is a regular druggist. This is not a druggist who's in the business of, of providing illegal drugs to people in necessity. I mean, you're, you're, you're making a business out of it. I can understand it. Well, it's a, it's a very limited business under this well, injunction, uh, which can serve only patients who meet these uh, criteria. And I might point out, it's a business in which the government itself uh, has been engaged. Uh, the government uh, provides cannabis uh, at the present time to to eight patients who meet essentially the criteria of, of medical necessity. And I, don't, I don't think your example from the model penal code would en- envision a pharmacist filling a prescription or, or filling an order for some drug that is on Schedule One, which no prescription is good for. Well, we're saying the requirement of a prescription is not a judgment with respect to the availability of a necessity defense. Uh, even a drug as to which no prescription is permitted. But it, it's one thing to say that a state law requiring a prescription for a, a bunch of drugs can be violated in an emergency. It's another thing to say that a Schedule One law, which says there's no there's no useful medical purpose for this drug, should well, be violated. The, the government's position actually is that there is no necessity defense for any drug under the Controlled Substances Act. 
Uh, and, and I think it's very important that the Court realize that the reason we're here is because the government shut down the only program that could accommodate these patients. For many years, uh, they provided cannabis and, and still do for eight patients who come within this medical necessity criteria. Uh, and, and they closed that program down in, uh, uh, in 1992, and they say in their brief, we can do it because we're the federal government. You can't do it because you're a private citizen. What we're saying, uh, if you won't do it, we can do it, because the only justification you have to do it is the same necessity defense that we're asserting. And the way the necessity defense works is if a patient comes in and says, I have to have this to live, and the court says, well, the government has a program. They'll give it to you. Therefore, you have a reasonable alternative. You don't have a necessity defense. And that's exactly what happened in United States versus Burton, the Sixth Circuit case. A patient with glaucoma comes into court, asserts a necessity defense. The court says, you have a reasonable alternative. And that patient then goes to the government, and they put him on the compassionate IND program and provide him with cannabis. Well, now the government decides we're not going to operate that program anymore. And we say, if you're not going to do it, then we can, because the only justification you had to do it was this medical necessity concept. There is no authorization within the uh, Controlled Substances Act for the government to give cannabis as medicine to patients. And when this uh, program was examined by Congress, uh, and I especially invite the Court to carefully look at the hearings held by Congress on the therapeutic uses of marijuana and Schedule I drugs. The way this program was explained to Congress in 1980 was we are providing cannabis for medical use by these patients, and the reason we're doing it is because of compassion and because of the therapeutics. That was the explanation given by Congress. I thought and it came out of a settlement of a lawsuit. It came out of a settlement of a lawsuit where the patient successfully asserted a medical necessity defense, uh, and, and, and uh, the federal authorities then stepped in and said, we will provide you with the cannabis you need to preserve your sight. Successfully in what way did the plaintiff get a judgment in that case? You said it, there was a settlement. Uh, this was after he was acquitted. He brought a civil lawsuit, and in settlement of that suit, this program was established. Thank you, Mr. Ullman. Thank you. Uh, General Underwood, you have three minutes remaining. Uh, a medical necessity defense is foreclosed here not only by the fact that Congress contemplated and rejected it and not only by the fact that alternatives are available, but also because any necessity defense is a response to unusual and unforeseen circumstances. It couldn't possibly uh, — the common law uh, necessity defense couldn't possibly authorize an ongoing uh, enterprise designed to stand ready and provide supplies to people who might show up with their own individual claims of medical necessity. Um, there's no constitutional problem with the statutory procedure for deciding when and if medical uses for a drug uh, exist. 
or with protect and the court held in in Weinberger against Hinson that it's perfectly appropriate for the FDA to reject anecdotal evidence and insist on uh, controlled studies. There's also no problem with protecting sick people from charlatans or unsafe and ineffective drugs, as this court held in Rutherford in dealing with the laetrile, the, the, the claim that there was a, a, a right to use laetrile. Um, respondents in this case have never presented their claims, the claims they're making here, to the FDA. They've never sought review of the classification of marijuana in Schedule One. They've never sought access to, or at least so far as the record reflects, to the clinical trials that are ongoing right now to deal with uh, synthetic um, uh, manufacture and, and uh, of uh, components of marijuana. And on the remedy for contempt at the petition appendix um, at 25A and again at 37A, it's perfectly clear that the government was not seeking fines or incarceration, that the judge wasn't contemplating fines or incarceration, but just uh, evicting and padlocking, closing down this business. Thank you, General Underwood. The case is submitted.